October 21st, 2012, lecture discussion number 86 on the book of Romans. And well, last week you can look on the board here. This is, uh, uh, we're battling through Romans 5.12, or what I call the seven parts of Romans 5.12. The therefore, the through one man, the sin entered, then death through sin, I add the then, and thus death spread, and then to all men, because all sin. Uh, and I, uh, I changed the tense of that from sin to, to sin, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it helps people see the progression of it. So once again, therefore, through one man, sin entered, then death through sin, thus dead, death spread to all men because all sin. And I skipped the therefore uh, last week, and not on, okay, on purpose, not because it's insignificant. It is actually very significant. Uh, and I, but I, I wanted to get through one man with all of its implications and to uh, kind of refresh or repeat uh, what we've been doing here, uh, for those who might have missed it, uh, the question right off the bat is, why Adam? Why is he the one man? Because one man takes this tremendous responsibility, if you will. Why is it Adam that got this responsibility? And then, uh, uh, why, why through Adam did sin enter the world and then death spread from there? Because as you know, 1 Timothy 2.14, and you can never say this sermon enough. I got a, a, an email from a gentleman that, that said uh, one of the things that really made him look differently at the Bible was the implication of 1 Timothy 2.14, the fact that Adam was not deceived. Uh, he is the only created human being, and of course all human beings. But I, I add words like that so that you don't have any conflict with the deity of Christ in your head. So I'll say it again that way. The only created human being of whom it is said was not deceived. You are all, you are sitting next to somebody who is deceived. And we are deceived on a consistent basis. Of no other person is it said uh, they were not deceived. That in itself is a profound, stunning verse that just goes, it's very, very far-reaching. So why does the one who was declared not deceived in Scripture, why is he the one man through whom sin entered thus and then death through sin, thus death spread. Why is he taking this? Why, why is he the responsible one? Have this burden, this guilt. The Romans 5.12, one man. Why is it Adam? He wasn't deceived. And he was not deceived by who? Two people tried to deceive him in all likelihood. One is Satan. Adam was not deceived by Satan. Maybe the only being ever besides, maybe. I don't know how many of the angelic hosts were deceived, but I know Adam was not. And of course, Eve would have made an attempt to deceive him in all likelihood. How do we know that? Some of you are grinning already, knowing that I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> Adam might be the first man of all time of ever who was not deceived by either Satan or a woman. The combination of two is extraordinary. I don't want to make light of it, but it is extraordinary that he was not deceived. Us puny humans, if we were writing the story, which proves that we're not writing the story, right? We'd quickly assign the preponderance of, of the culpability to Eve. She was the first human being. She went first. She deserves the beating, but she doesn't get it, does she? It's Adam. 
carries the, bur- the burden, the, the, the death sentence or curse, if you will. Or we give it to Satan because Satan is the one that fell first. Both sinned before Adam, but that's not what it says. That's not the result. Adam bore this accountability. It is Adam who is liable. He is the one man, the man through whom comes death. And Eve, conversely, is the opposite. The Bible says the opposite of her. She's the woman. The first of humanity in sin is called the mother of all the living. Genesis 3.20 Adam is called the man of through, through death. He's the man of death. Eve, Eve, sorry, is the woman of life. The mother of all the living. Why not the mother of all the dead? That's the way we would have written it, right? That's not what it says, Genesis 3.20. And that's just some, just a couple of the hundreds and hundreds of mysteries that are within the relatively few verses that describe Adam, Eve, and Satan. Probably the, if I had to, I say this about almost everything, it seems like. But uh, the story of Adam and Eve and Satan is universally butchered by the church today. I was telling Sue, visiting Sue from Wisconsin, because all of you on the Internet will want to know uh, where where she's from. So I was telling Sue from Wisconsin that uh, uh, it is, it's very frustrating to see the church fall apart with regard to the knowledge and the wisdom that's in the church. The scientific wisdom is gone. The the academic wisdom is gone and the teaching of those kinds of subjects. The church is no longer a place where the, where people come to learn something of great value. Uh, they come to be entertained and, and fleeced. And it is the way it is. It was not always that way. The church uh, of the 16, 17, 18, and even early 1900s uh, had tremendous amount of wisdom in it that is almost all gone now. Okay, last Sunday as well, we went over the uh, question of extinguishing, or extinction, if you will, or annihilation, whatever you wish to refer to it as. What I mean by that is reflected in the question about Adam. As soon as, or Satan, or Eve even, pick all of them. As soon as Adam made the decision, the free will decision to sin, and became the one man of Romans 5.12, the question of annihilation surfaces. Why didn't God totally destroy the body and soul of Adam at that instant? Why didn't he erase the existence of Adam at that instant? Or for that matter, the same for even Satan. Why, at the instant that Satan sins, why allow him to continue to spread the sin into the angelic host? See, the relationship isn't there between Adam and Satan. One spread the sin into the angelic host and caused death and destruction in the spiritual realm and the other in the physical realm. So they sit side by side. Why didn't God, as soon as Eve was deceived by Satan, why didn't he annihilate her, put her into, uh, 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 put her into non-existence, if you will? And those two questions, by the way, are um, are very common, often raised. And that's somewhat surprisingly, um, but they do indeed trouble many Christians, and they shouldn't, as you know. Inherent in those questions is a veiled insult on the character of God. So as soon as you start raising a question like that, you have to evaluate, what am I saying about God when I ask, why didn't God annihilate uh, Adam, is that a question that builds God up? 
or does it tear him down? Let's just take it from that simplistic of an angle. Because it is, it is a, an insult, a veiled insult on the character, the goodness, the love of God, and once you begin to evaluate it. And if that's not readily apparent, let me reword the questions a little bit for you, just to make a small minor adjustment, and hopefully you'll see it. Why didn't God, instead of annihilating Adam instantly, as soon as he sins, and then also annihilating Satan and Eve, and just wrapped it all up in one big clean package right there, to take them all and... It totally and utterly destroy them in the sense that they cease to exist forever from that point and erase the memories of these persons in whomever they came in contact with. Why didn't God do that? Well, that's an attack on his goodness, by the way, immediately, but let's keep going. Why didn't God simply erase Adam's memory then? And say, we're not going to take Adam out, let's just take out his memory. We'll give him a pill, right? Don't they say they can now give you a pill that will erase your memory while you sleep? They say that. Get one now. I'll sell you one. They've had that, that, that for years, by the way, that capability. Memory erasing. It can be self-induced. Figure it out yourself. But why didn't God erase Adam's memory? Just eliminate everything up to and including the first sin. You, you know, maybe take out the three months. Maybe a year. Whatever he's got to do. Why doesn't he... And, and now you understand that I have a position that Adam has significant amount of age on him at the time of the fall, right? I'll defend that as we go through it. But why not just take out that period of time where Adam was beginning to deal with the fall of Eve? Just take it out. Erase it. And erase it out of Eve. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Work good. Huh? Nothing wrong with that? Isn't that a good option to consider? What's the answer? No, it's not. Hi, Sophie. It's not a good option. No. Why isn't it a good option? You have to think about it. You must figure that out. Let's try another idea. You should figure it out. Somehow it's attacking the character of God. It's telling you, it's saying that God is not loving if he does that. Somehow. You keep thinking about it. Let's try another idea. How about God just implants all of Adam's memories into a newly created Adam. We'll call him Adam too, right? So we'll take out... You know, because we can't be sure, we can't be positive we can get all the memories and all the sin out of him, right? It's very pervasive, it goes very fast. So we just take out 75% of his memories, maybe 90%. We create a new Adam, and we put those those ideas into Adam 2. Isn't that a great idea? Let's do that. So, let me put it this way. God totally destroys Adam, and let's also throw in Eve and Satan. Might as well clean up all of it. God totally destroys Adam and Eve, body and soul. Then he makes Adam two and Eve two and implants into them 86.4% of their memories, maybe. And so they are a new Adam and a new Eve. And the new Adam and the new Eve think, they think they're the original Adam and Eve. But they're not. They're Adam two and Eve two. But he got rid of the sin. Is that a good idea? 
Problem solved, right? It, it seems like a good idea until you apply the solution to your own self, your own resurrection, or your own family. I do it with uh, your dogs, so I don't insult anybody. I worry about insulting people, as you know. It makes me feel really bad. And that, of course, is not true. That's a fake really bad. But let me put it this way. God will, your dog uh, has passed. And God says, well, I'm not going to resurrect your dog for you. I know you love your dog, but I'm not going to resurrect your dog. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a new dog. It'll look like your dog. I'm going to just make you a new one. And I'm going to make it act and seem like it's your dog. Are you happy with your fake dog? Would you be happy with your fake wife? Don't answer that. I worked worked hard on that. I really did. took me a long time. I saw it coming. I set it up. So I'm glad you laughed. (laughs) But you would not be happy with a fake you, a fake family member, a fake dog, a fake cat, a fake anything. And don't you see that if that is the solution that you have, if you if you make God the implanter of uh, memories, and I brought this idea up before, if you make him the a few weeks ago the implanter of memories into a replication of you, if that's your idea, it makes God what? It makes him an illusionist. It makes you. It, it makes him a deceiver. It makes him a liar because he is not truly resurrecting anyone, is he? He's simply remanufacturing things that seem that they're resurrected, but they're really not the original. They're a copy. And he's is fake. There's no true resurrection, just fake resurrection. My self identity is lost. My continuity existence of existence is lost. And as you've heard me say just again recently, continuity of soul must be. Continuity of soul is necessary for resurrection to be true. I need to know it's me, you need to know it's you. And if you missed that discussion a few weeks ago, see me afterwards. I'll condense it uh, down to uh, maybe three or four hours for you. You'll miss the buffet. Uh, Or you can find it on the Internet. It's somewhere out there in all kinds of different places. And here I want to talk to the Internet people. I mentioned this already in the announcements to those of uh, of us who are here. But I did notice that on uh, Podbean, uh, 460 of you, as of a couple of days ago, almost 500 of you, have downloaded a a lecture that I did in a very short period of time, uh, a month or so. And that uh, is interesting to me. I I wanted to play it, but my computer won't, what I call a computer, won't play it. Uh, So I had Christopher bring it up, and then I got too bored listening to it within... 10, 15 seconds to actually find out what I was saying in it. Uh, that's not true, really, either. Uh, 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 but we just didn't have time for me to figure out what it was, what the subject was. Uh, it was Romans, I think, number 81. So that's so long ago, I don't remember it. I'm kidding about that, too. My point is, is that I, I'm stunned that almost 500 of you will listen to a lecture in that shorter period of time. And we're really grateful, and we want you to go at some point to cliffside.org. 
uh, supper day reminded me before the lecture to tell you to go to supper, I'm sorry, to go to cliffside.org, not supperdave.org. I don't think that exists yet, but it probably will a couple of days now. Somebody will hear it. But uh, please go to there and uh, let us know what you think. And um, as you know, our big plan for survival is to sell T-shirts. Uh, that That is coming closer and closer. Okay. I want you to, uh, hopefully, to, to, uh, sorry about that little intercession there, but hopefully you see the relationship now between why doesn't God annihilate and why doesn't God implant memories. They are what? They're the same thing. Same kettle, same fish. Very closely related. They take you down the same path. They, they, you end up accusing God of being evil when you do that. That is why he doesn't annihilate. That is why he doesn't implant. God is doing the opposite of implanting and annihilating. Uh, let, let, as an aside here, just for fun, because since I started so early, I get to go the same amount of time and quit at the same time. Let me just throw this out. How do we remain us? This is a question I get all the time. How do we remain us if we have no sin our memory of our sins. Let me just put it this way. How do we cut up, cut out our memories of our sins instead? Because what do we have? We have sin, lots of sin. How much non-sin do we have? Not very much non-sin. If you get rid of all the non-sin, how much are you left? Not much left. So I want to be me. Do, let me ask you this question. Do the unsaved in the lake of fire remember their sins? They do. So what's the obvious question? Do we remember our sins? Do we carry with us, now, by the way, does God remember our sins? When he says, I have taken your sins and put them as far as the east is from the west, what does that mean? Did he forget your sins? He forgave the sins, that's for sure. He does not hold you or me or any of us that are saved accountable for our sins. But how do you separate my sin from me? How do I remain me? By the way, does Christ carry any remembrance with him of his life here on earth? Yes, he does. He carries the same physical characteristics, doesn't he? In some manner of speaking. We know that he has some physical characteristics that are the same. How many? Just think about that. Do we carry physical features forward? Do we remember our sins? You have to deal with that, don't you? We should talk about that for the rest of the sermon, but we won't. Anyway, God's doing the opposite of annihilation, isn't he? He's doing the opposite of implanting new memories. And as Supper Dave said last week, very profoundly so, God is proving things. And one of the things he is proving by not annihilating and by not implanting memories or being an illusionist or any way you wish to describe him, he's, he's proving that he is... Uh, has this amazing love for us. He proves to us that we have true existence. We do not, um, we do not ever cease to exist at any time. 
We have immortality. And therefore, true resurrection, therefore, continuity of soul, and therefore, he is a God of incomprehensible love. So when you begin to ask questions about why aren't we annihilated, what's always the answer? Love is the answer. It is not love if he annihilates. It is not love if he extinguishes. It is not love if he implants. It is love the way he is doing it. So that is the way he is doing it. Our continuity of soul, mind, our immortality, our existence, and the fact that it always is, is a result of a being that is a loving creator. So, that's the answer to that. Somebody says, why doesn't God annihilate us and implant memories and make a fake dog? Because God's love. That would not be love. Our continuity of soul and mind is a result, again, of a loving creator. True existence is immortal. If God were to annihilate, then there never was true existence. And we're back to C.S. Lewis's fantastic, simple, but fantastic what, how many letters or words? Eight word sentence. If, if she is not, then she never was. I'm talking about his wife. He says it this way. If H is not, then she never was. If she ceases to exist, then she never had existence. He's absolutely profoundly right about that because God would then be what? The source of evil and not love. Enough of that for now. I wish that I, I want to return to Thomas, which is where we left off last week. And fear of death and Elisha. Those all fit together. Thomas, fear of death, and Elisha. And yes, Elisha. Elisha is the Old Testament complement to John 20, 24 through, actually 19. So I have Elisha at 2 Kings 6, and I have John I would say it probably goes all the way back to maybe 18 through 29, chapter 20. Those two are talking about the same thing. So when you get to the end of John 20 and you see Thomas um, putting his hand in the side and touching the hands of Christ, then you are back in Elijah 2 Kings 6 and you're also back at Adam. But we'll get all of that in a second. And that's what I want to do is deal with that right now. So I'm kind of changing gears on you while I brought you up to speed from the previous week. And we should read those side by side, put them side by side, and notice what is the same about them, what is different, and what they, how they add together. And probably the most important thing, uh, one thing, if you had uh, to assign one thing, that you can do as a student of Scripture is uh, is to know that the Old Testament is primarily, that's what it's doing, it's, it's teaching first and foremost and prophesying about Jesus Christ on every single page. That's what it does. And if you don't read it understanding that, you're in a lot of trouble. He tells you, he says, I fulfill the Old Testament, Matthew 5.17. And, and he also says, the Old Testament testifies of me, John 5.39. That's what he's doing. He's fulfilling the prophecies and he is fulfilling the typologies of, of the Old Testament. So always, always, always search for the Old Testament compliment. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. The Old Testament compliment of Thomas is Elisha. Always look for that Old Testament compliment. Uh, 
that find in the New Testament where Christ um, fulfills and 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 where that Old Testament is testifying. There's always going to. That's how you tell that the Bible is the Bible. Because if I cannot find the New Testament complement, then I have to wonder where it went. Why isn't it there? It has to be there, and it will be there, and it's always there. And always, if you don't find it, what's wrong? You're not doing a good job. That's what's wrong. So again, always, always, always search for the Old Testament complement of the New Testament Christ event. And failure to do that is failure. Okay, let's go look at Second Kings. I've done this uh, Second Kings six many, many times, as you know, and and it's it's just. This is fantastic stuff. I have to do Thomas. Why? Because I'm talking about fear of death, aren't I? And so that's why Thomas comes in. But Second uh, Kings four, five, six, and seven—just amazing amount of New Testament material in there. So let's look, let's start at six fourteen, um, and then we'll go to eighteen really fast. Therefore. And this is the king of Syria, by the way, is trying to kill Elisha. Um, and he wants to he wants to destroy Israel, which is uh, kind of their whole mission in life for many, many generations, and, and including today. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, so I have Elisha called the man of God. He has his servant, if you wish, Tonto. So uh, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to Elisha, it says him, but I'll say Elisha so you know, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Who's he with? He's with Elisha. That's, see, that's a really weird question if you think about it. That's kind of like, well, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but that would be a lot like, uh, and, and since uh, Drew is getting deployed to uh, uh, Korea here a couple of days, uh, I'll use analogy he'll appreciate. I'm I'm playing football for the New England Patriots. And we're down by six or seven points, maybe fourth quarter. And I go into the huddle and I say to everybody, we're in a lot of trouble. What shall we do? The first response out of the quarterback, Tom Brady, would be, you're not going to do anything. Just sit down and shut up. It's what will I do? See, that's the question I would expect. He's with Elisha. Why does he say, what shall we do? Like, he's going to do something. He's going to be part of it. He's with who? He's with Elisha. How powerful is Elisha? Very, very powerful. So the right question is not what should we do, but what are you going to do? Because you're the only one really capable of doing anything. So find yourself in the uh, in this lesson. Who who is the one that is scared to death and thinks they're going to do something? So he answered, "Do not fear." So Elisha answers him, "Do not fear, for those who are with us more than those who are with them are more than those who are with them." And that's a great 
verse, and I'll get to it in a minute. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. So what's wrong with him? One, he's, uh, he thinks he's going to do something, and two, he's blind as a bat. Find yourself in the story. Which one are you? And behold, I'm sorry, then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, which tells you he wasn't seen at that point. And behold, I cannot say that loud enough. Behold, whenever you see behold, something incredible is going to be said in the next word, certainly the next sentence. So whatever's coming, there's, there's something amazing. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Okay? So I'm stopping there at verse 18. But you should read on and and really take note of the blindness and the man you seek and the mercy from execution and the great feast. So let me repeat those. Um, they are struck with blindness. Man, they seek a man. Who are they looking for? They're looking for Elisha, right? But what is Elisha? What's the purpose of the Old Testament? He's a type of Christ. So when you see the man you seek, and then they are, he, he does not execute them. He gives them great mercy from their deserved execution because they're blind. And eventually he opens their eyes when they're inside the city. So there's a tremendous picture. And there's a great feast. And hopefully you can immediately see that tremendous portrait of Christ hidden in those verses 19 through 23. Look at it this way. The man you seek, mercy from death, eternal life. That's the great feast, right? But for today, for our purposes today, I want you to notice this great army surrounds the city. And the servant of the man of God, again, find Christ says this, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he says, Do not fear. Or if you will, fear not. We, those with us, are more than those with them. That's what he says. And then he wants, he says, he asks for his eyes to be opened that he may finally see. What's he trying to see? What's he want him to see? What does he see? Does he see physical things or spiritual things? Spiritual things. What's he focused on up to this point? Physical things. Specifically, what kind of physical things? And then this great behold is there. And hopefully you will, on your own, begin to contrast the scene of the servant versus the blindness of the Syrians. But again, not for today. We're just getting started today in this huge pile I'm going to throw on the plate for you to deal with. Elijah, by the way, is is the type of Christ that you find in the Old Testament that teaches us of one attribute of Christ. Which one is it? Do you know what it is? It teaches you that Elisha never fears anything. Why not? He can see. He sees what's in the hills. I got all kinds of stuff in the hills. What's in the hills? Probably billions of angels. I don't know how many exactly, but I would guess billions. Because why? God loves billions. Yes. Same thing. 
Yeah, uh, Supper Dave was pointing out the King James Version. How shall we do? Like you're going to do something. Get yourself where you belong. Where do you belong? You're very, very small, very, very tiny, and you should be on the ground. That's your job. Your job is not not taking credit for what God does. That's our job. Humble yourself, right? Don't get up on the altar. You'll just get blowed up. Okay. Elisha teaches us two things about Christ over and over again that we add to the other types. One of them is there is no fear in Christ ever. Of course, that makes sense because Elisha also teaches us that the complement, if you will, the, the companion to no fear, which is omniscience. If you look at 2 Kings 6.12, you see the omniscience of Elisha being portrayed. Now, it's limited, but it is a portrait of Christ who has complete omniscience. Elisha knows the secrets of his enemies who seek his death. So that tells you that Christ is omniscient and that he also knew the secrets of his enemies at all times. And that includes Judas, the Pharisees, Satan, all of them. Right? There's never a thing that Christ doesn't know. have to understand that or you get lost. And it's very important to undertake a study of Elisha. It will end any silliness about Christ having fear about his crucifixion. Can't be true. He's omniscient. Fear is the opposite of omniscience. The exact, absolute opposite of omniscience. Fear is absolutely contradictory and incompatible with omniscience. So if you say that Christ fears, then you're saying he's not omniscient. And fear is what? It's sin. So you're saying he's not omniscient and he has sin in him. As soon as you say he's afraid of something, then you say that he is Uh, He has sin in him, which fouls the sacrifice that he is, and then nobody's saved again. There we are again. But I I have digressed into becoming the ranting idiot again, I know. That was just for my friends in Florida who aren't writing me. And I've missed your letters. How come you're not writing anymore? I've really enjoyed our conversations. But they have they have quit. I, I'm here. I hear. I only did one sermon uh, for my friends in Florida, and now all I got is crickets chirping. I would like you to respond to them, and I'm serious about that. I really am. Please let me know what you're thinking. It gives me lots of material, and I'm very busy now. Anytime I can get a hand up like that, I'll take it. Okay. Before we get to John 20, ask, what was the young servant, I'm sorry, what was the young servant afraid of? Why did he, alas, we are in trouble. No, you aren't in trouble. Look in what's around us. You're next to Elisha, who's a type of Christ and a very powerful prophet of God. You're not in trouble. But what was he afraid of? Let me ask again. Who was he afraid of? What is the behold, that great truth that is coming? Behold. Okay, the mountain was full of horses and chariots all around Elisha. That's a great truth. It tells you about Christ. It tells you about the spiritual reality. There's lots of things in that behold. Okay, But again, think to yourself, what was he afraid of? Uh, Who was he afraid of? Now, John 20. 
which I'm submitting is the complement to this event. Omniscience and fear on display. Okay. Remember, as you go, uh, as you continue uh, to uh, uh, John 21, you see omniscience on there. Finally, Peter says to Christ, um, you know all things. So there's omniscience right behind this that we're going to read. It took Peter had to declare Christ to be omniscient before Christ would put him back into surface service. Very important to know that. So here we are, John. Start at 19. I'll just read 19 and 20 and then I'll skip to 25. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now they're afraid of the Jews. Who was the servant afraid of? Of Elisha. He was afraid of the Syrian army, right? <coughs> Why? What was he afraid the Syrian army would do to him? Going to kill him. Why are these guys hiding out of where they're hiding from the Jews? Who are they, by the way? They're the disciples. What have they done so far up to this point? They've done some amazing things. And they're afraid. Of what? Of the Pharisees. What did they think the Jews were going to do to them? Then the same evening, the same evening, or the same day at evening, being in the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the mists, mist, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Okay. There's some incredible questions right there. What's the first one that just comes flying off? He comes into the room, which is not a problem for him because he is the creator of the physical reality. He comes into the room and what's he doing? He's showing him, he's showing them what? His side and his hands. So this is post-resurrection, isn't it? So he has what? He has some physical characteristic that they need to see. Why do they need to see this? What does this prove? Why is that a big deal? Here I go. Oh, is that... Can barely say the word. Appendix scar. Is that what we're doing? Look here. Look, I had two hernias fixed a while back. You want to see my scar to prove it's me? See, look, I shot that finger with a nail gun, that thumb with a nail gun. I'm having trouble with this hand. You want to see the scars? Does that prove to you that it's me? How many guys got crucified and pierced? How many? How many got nailed off and stabbed with a spear? How many times do Romans do that? Thousands of times. That proves... Why? Isn't that a wonderful question? Wrestle with that. I'm moving on. Uh, uh, 26. And after eight days... Oh, no, I'll go to 25. Then the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. They're talking to Thomas. Thomas says this. Um, he's, not, he's not buying anything. So Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails... Why? Why is that such a big deal? Look, 
I just don't want to pick on Thomas here. But if Christ came to me right now, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, but if he did and he walked up and said, you mind if I preach? No, sir. We're, we're going out, we're, we're on the ground where we belong. Now some people would say, no, wait just a minute. Let me at least get the offering in, right? But no, uh, trust me, I would shut it down right there. And what I say to him, let me see your hands and your side to prove to me you're God. I wouldn't be doing that. What would I ask him for? If he came and he said, hey, dummy, do you need me to prove that I'm God? Sure. What would you like me to do? The chances that I say back to him, let me see your hands and your side, is nil. Because I always put myself in these stories, and I wonder, what are these guys thinking? Why do they want this? What's this doing? Well, let's, let's read it again. Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What? That make any sense to me. Believe what? What's wrong with you, Thomas? And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. And notice he's now said, Peace, three times. Why is he saying peace, right? And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. And reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And this is really important, because what does it say next? Does it say that Thomas did that? No. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, your God. Something about Christ at that point made him know that this is God. Because what did Christ do to him? He repeated to Thomas what Thomas said. Just like Elisha repeats to everybody what the king of Syria said. See how they fit? Christ knows what you're saying in secret. There's a big concept for you. God, you have no secrets from Christ. You have no secrets from from anybody, frankly. You might think you do, but we don't. Our sins will find us out. But just like Elisha's typology, Thomas says something that he didn't think anybody knew about, and Christ comes in and says to him, I heard what you said, essentially, to his face. And that omniscience makes Thomas say, you our omniscient God, just like Peter will do in a few verses where he says, you know all things. Again, omniscience is in play. And, and Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Okay, so there we are. Christ, the body resurrected, God himself, the I am in the flesh, has come to his disciples who have scattered and fled and have all not believed. And they have all been unbelieving. And and question immediately, thank you, Terry, not believing what exactly? And Christ says to them, peace with you, peace to you. Why does he say that? Is it just an insignificant, polite greeting? No, it's God. Of course it's not insignificant and polite. God is telling them something. He says what? He's announcing something to them. It isn't, hi, how are you? It's, you have something now. What do you have? Peace. You're no longer what? At war. You're no longer an enemy of God. Well, a peace treaty is finished. It's completed, right? It is finished. It's all done. Anyway, I want you to see that Second Kings 6 connection is, do you see those who are with us are greater than those who are with them? It really is us versus them. Which one are you, the us or the them? What is the same with respect to the service and, I'm sorry, the servant and Thomas? Both of them are fearing something and hiding, right? I'm not going to believe I'm safe. I'm not going to believe I'm okay until it's proven to me. Both of them have fear. They feel, they fear the those, the those who are going to do what? That's right, kill and bring physical death to them. Which raises the obvious question. Why this fear of death? We have it. It's ubiquitous. The terror, it's everywhere. What causes this fear of death? How did Christ turn these frightened cowards, scattering little chickens, into men that had no fear of death, no fear of dying? They not only didn't fear death, they had no fear of the dying process. And the dying process for them was brutal and didn't bat an eye. You almost get the impression they thought it was funny. How did he get them from, from this, what we feel is this tremendous terror? And they got the opposite of that. All of them, everyone went triumphantly to their deaths. What did they know? What did they see? Covered that somewhat last Sunday. And, and so I'm adding Elisha's typology to it. Most certainly, what did Christ do? If he's following that typology and that prophecy, which he is, it's, it's portraying him. What did he do? He did the same thing that Elisha did. What did he show them? He showed them the spiritual reality. They got to see it. The servant of the man who is God, the servants, were armed with first-hand knowledge of the angelic realm, just like the servant of Elisha. They had first-hand knowledge of the spiritual reality, and therefore they had a perspective that only comes from that first-hand experience. Which is why Christ says to Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me. Not just the hands in the side. And again, why this emphasis of the hands in the side? Why does his hands still have the print of the nails, by the way? Because they do. Why? Why didn't he fix that? Look, if he got a, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I got crucified, I got cut up really bad, and I, you know, my misshapen nose, and I'm gone, I'll just start fixing stuff. Add some hair, you know, make my hands a little bigger so I can reach that bar cord. 
But Christ still has physical characteristics. Why does his hand still have the prints of the nail? Uh, how is it that Thomas knew it was possible to put his hands into Christ's side? Well, he gets that from the others because they obviously must have done that or saw that. Better question, why is Christ carrying still, again, those physical evidence of his crucifixion? What do they prove? Especially, listen, what's going to make me believe this is God seeing the angelic realm? Or, hey, let me look at your hand. I'm going to be very interested in the angelic realm, and I'm not even going to care if there's a scar in his hand. But I should, because it's very important. The hands and the side are great proofs somehow. Thomas declared them as soon as he saw anything, as soon as he saw Christ, he declares him to be God. And I know, by the way, that Adam has a side. Not only does Christ have a wound in his side, but so does Adam, right? Back I'm going. Do you see how I'm putting this together? Adam has a scar on his side that proves he's who? He's Adam. Because out of that came the material. Out of the side of Adam came the material, the bone and the flesh that builded Eve. Christ has a side that proves he's God. Makes me immediately wonder about what now? About Adam. Because this is all about what? Hands and sides so far. So I want to know about the hand of Adam or the hands of Adam. Adam was driven out of the garden for, why? God says, I gotta get you out of here. Why? Lest you what? Reach out with what? Your hand and take from the tree of life. I can't let you do that because then you will be forever in sin. I gotta stop that. I've gotta put myself between you and the tree of life, my blood. I gotta get you cleansed of sin. Then you can have the tree of life. But he's going to put his hand out and take from the tree of life eventually. He hadn't yet. And it says before he takes and puts his hand out. Before he, not Eve. It's all about Adam. Very important to know that. And that, by the way, is the first mention of the word hand in all the Bible, Genesis 3.22. Obviously, we must compare the hands of Christ and the side of Christ with the hand of Adam and the side of Adam and the cherubim and the flaming sword because Adam got to see what? How much spiritual reality did he know? Lots. He walked in the garden, right? He had that all worked out. And then we had Thomas and the disciples and Elisha. You see, Adam understood. He knew things and saw things that removed fear of death, and so did the disciples, and and as did the servant of Elisha and Elisha. Physical death, by definition, is a physical process, and all of these guys here saw and heard and witnessed the spiritual, the supernatural, and that completely removed fear from them. They no longer feared the Syrians in the case of the servant of Elisha. The Jews, I'm sorry, the disciples no longer feared the Jewish Pharisees, nor did they fear the Romans, nor did they fear the unknown. Because once you see the spiritual reality, there ain't a whole lot of unknown left to worry about. Christ removed the unknown. There was no unknown for the disciples. You get that in the rest of John where they're talking to him about how they're going to die. And they want to know how John's going to die. John was the, the legend of John is that the Romans put him in a vat of oil and boiled him. How'd it go? 
He sat there, read the paper. It didn't affect him. How much fear did John have? Apostle John. None. How do you get like that? There was no unknown for John. But back to the things we know. You see where we are? We're back to things we know, things we know that we don't know, and things we don't know that we don't know. The known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. There we are again. Imagine for a second that you you have no unknowns. That you have what Elisha had. That you had what the disciples had and and the servants had. How much would that change us or you? What would we do if we saw the spiritual realm? That's why he said, more blessed are those who don't get to see what you guys have seen. Because they're believing without it. I had to give it to you, Thomas, so that you would believe me. You got to see the spiritual reality. When Christ came to him, it was an unbelievable, stunning event for him. And I'll demonstrate that next week. But how much would you change? Why, Why do we fear death? Where does the fear of death come from? Why does the fear of death exist, if you will? Why is there a fear of death? Where does it come from? Why is the fear of death a characteristic of the physical reality that we live in? I'm watching spiders. I was talking to Anna about this. I watch watch spiders all the time at Mike and Catherine's because there's spiders everywhere there. There's spiders all over their house. Max goes around killing spiders. He calls that a productive day. (laughs) <laughs> we call a little bit uh, disturbing. But the whole side of the house is covered with spiders, especially when the sun comes out this time of year because it's warm and there are thousands of them. And all you got to do is go anywhere near the spider and they're pretty good size. They're about, well, maybe the size of uh, their legs would extend over a dime. We call that a big spider here. That's why we're here. We hate spiders. We don't want a spider that sits on a frisbee. We don't want that. Uh, but uh, I get anywhere close to that spider, what's it do? Stops. Freezes. Watches me. I move, it moves. I don't move, it don't move. Now that's interesting to me. I interpret that, could be wrong, but I interpret that as fear of death. Survival. It's uh, There's altruism. Animals will sacrifice themselves for other animals and for people, by that way. And people will sacrifice themselves for people. That's goodness. That's altruism. But why does fear of death exist? Why, it, why is it a characteristic of this physical reality? What does this all have to do with Lazarus in John 11? Yeah, that's right. Add Lazarus. He died twice. How much fear did he have the second time? And that's a good start. Okay, it's a start. Next week, we're going to try to reconcile this. Here is the answer to all those questions for you really quickly. Next week, we're going to reconcile. Fear not, because God says, don't fear. What's he say fear is? If you put fear in Christ, what have you put in Christ? Sin. What's fear? Sin. So he says, stop it. But we got to reconcile that with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Somehow, you're supposed to fear, but don't fear. 
How's that work? And there obviously, aha here, obviously there is a difference between fear. You have fear, and then you have fear, and you have to know the difference between the fear. Fear what and fear who? Fearing who and fearing what? There's a right what and a wrong who. There's a right who and a wrong what? And a wrong who. That makes sense? If it does, you're on your way to figuring out fear. By the way, does God cause fear? Genesis 35, 5. He caused everybody that was around the Jews as they were leaving after the Dinah incident. Jacob, he caused them all the people who surrounded them to fear the Jews so they would be safe. He gave this entire group, large group of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, a fear of death. Genesis 35, 5. So you have to read that. And then finally, Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear people who can what? Fear, kill the body. Fear me, Christ says. I can put your soul into destruction. Not annihilation. Destruction. Musicians, let's go. There's a difference between destruction and annihilation. You might have thought otherwise, but you've got to read the context. Let's rise and be dismissed.